Lord, we thank you that our relationship with you is so intimate, that you are the very air that we breathe. Father, I pray right now as we go to your word that you administer to every heart that is here. Father, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a seat. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I don't know if he already asked you to do that or not. If you did, raise your hand and get a Bible. All right. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means the second giving of the law or the second law. If we're just to catch you up real quickly, again, the children of Israel are about to enter into the land of promise. And as they're about to enter into the land of promise, Moses is giving them the the one more time to the next generation, preparing them to enter in. Because Moses is not going to be able to enter in because he disobeyed the Lord. And what he really talks to them about tonight in tonight's chapter is matters of the heart. He's going to talk to them four times. He talks about in your heart, in your heart. Ten times in the text tonight, he tells them to remember the Lord. Because as they head into the land of promise, it's so easy when blessings come to forget about God. You know, it's one thing to remember God when you're hungry, and it's another thing to remember God when you've got everything that you need. And when they were hungry, they cried out to God, but he wanted to make sure that when they had all that they needed, they would not forget him. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, Samuel was sent to the sons of Jesse to anoint the king of Israel. And though each of these young strapping men came in, he said, this is not the one, this is not the one. And finally he said to them, don't look at, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Don't look at what they look like on the outside, look at their heart. And the chapter tonight is really all about the heart of the children of Israel as they go in. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God truly does look at the heart. The greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? He, shall, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Heart is the first one on the list for a reason, because our heart is revealed in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our words. The Bible says out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know what's in someone's heart? Listen to their mouth. What comes out of their mouth reveals their heart. Our heart is also revealed not only in what we say, but what we think and what we do. The heart of a man apart from God is prideful, it's self-centered, and it's wicked. It's concerned only with feeding its flesh. In Genesis 6-5, God said, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent and thought of his heart was evil continually. And you know what he did because of it? He brought a flood. And when he brought the flood, everybody was wiped out except for one man and his family. A man by the name of... Noah, because he walked with God. And so it's really an issue of the heart. And so often we're trying to portray how we look to men, and God doesn't care how we portray ourselves to men. It's who we are in our heart that matters. And tonight as they're getting ready to go in, four different times in the text, he's going to say, in your heart. And so tonight we're going to look at matters of the heart. In Psalm 51, written to David, written by David, and one of the things he says, right after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, is created me a clean heart, O God. So that means if you're here tonight, and after going through the text, you feel like your heart isn't where it needs to be, here's the good news. You can simply come before God and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart, and He will. He'll cleanse your heart even tonight. We can take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. Salvation is ultimately an issue of the heart. After, in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit had come upon the church with power and great boldness, it says in Acts 2, 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the 
heart. Because it's in our heart where salvation comes. It's in our heart. You know, it's interesting. Some people struggle with the, the, the terminology, with, especially with kids, saying asking Jesus into your heart. But the reality is it's pretty accurate. Because when we ask Jesus into our life, we're giving him our hearts. We're giving him everything that belongs to us. And so tonight, that's going to be the emphasis as he's encouraging them to head on in to the land of promise. He's really going to deal with matters of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as the children of Israel are about to enter in, Moses continues to instruct them. So, in tonight's chapter, we're going to see two different things. He's going to remind them of the previous trials they had been through. And he's going to remind them so their hearts will look back at what had happened in the past. And it will quicken their hearts before Almighty God. And he wants to teach them that in times of difficulty, to trust the Lord, to seek Him daily. And by the way, as we will see, the number one way we see what's in our heart is during times of difficulty. You know, it's been said, you know, if you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice, right? And if you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. It's real easy to be somebody who's on the cruise ship to heaven, but how do we respond in times of difficulty? So the first five verses are going to deal with how they respond in the midst of trials and remembering what God had done. And then the last 15 verses are going to deal directly with not what had happened in the past, but how they're to deal going forward. As they go into the land of promise and everything's going to change, they're not going to be wandering in the wilderness anymore. They're not going to be sleeping in tents and eating manna. Now they're going to be blessed. And you know what? There's just as big a potential to fall when things are horrible or when things are great as when they're horrible. Sometimes when they're horrible, we get on our knees and we cry out to God and sometimes we run away. But also sometimes in when times of, of plenty and prospering, that's also a time that we can turn away from God and we can trust in our stuff instead. So let's begin in verse 1. Moses reminds them of their trials and tests in the wilderness. They allowed them to go through difficulty to reveal their hearts. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord God swore to your fathers. Every commandment. You know, it's interesting. Every means every. means all of them. And too many Christians today, and, and we all have done it, right? Where we pick and choose sometimes. There's certain commandments we got no problem with. My kids have no problem when I tell them they must eat pizza. This is not a problem for them. You have to eat your pizza, no problem. Eat your lima beans, another question, right? And the reality is too, with us with God sometimes, we look at the commandments of God and some of them, yeah, that's no problem. But others we struggle with and sometimes we choose like like Saul did when bringing back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, instead of wiping them all out as God commanded, he brought back the one thing that was the greatest prize to him. And sometimes we do the same thing with the Lord. We look at the commandments as suggestions. You know, as long as I keep most of them, I'm in pretty good shape, right? But God says every commandment. Now, why does he give us commandments? He gives us commandments, again, not because he's a no-fun bummer God, but because he loves you. He didn't just say, be careful to study them in your mind. But he says to be careful to what? Observe them. Knowing the Word of God here doesn't do anything if it doesn't transform your heart down here. And it's been said that people will miss heaven by 18 inches. They'll have an understanding of God in their head, but no transformation in their heart. Our lives should radically be different when we come to know Christ. Amen? We should be told, we're new creations in Christ. And what he's telling them here is every commandment, everything I've told you guys, and everything I'm about to tell you, this, all of Deuteronomy is one long speech. He says, everything I'm about to tell you, all of it, you observe it when you go into the land of promise, and all of it was given that you might be closer to the Lord. One thing to know what the Bible says, another thing to live it out 
daily before God. And again, it is nothing short of rebellion to know what the Word of God says, but to live life in direct disobedience to it. And I'm amazed. And you know what? Can I tell you, I'm a sinner saved by grace like all of you. I blow it. Those of you who know me a long time can probably come up here and testify. I'm not going to let you, but you probably could, right? And the reality is that we all are sinners, but you know what? If we sin and we're convicted and we repent, that's one thing. But if we sin and we know it's sin and we say, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway, that's rebellion. And he's saying here very clearly that don't just know what it says, but observe it, do it, live it out in your life every single day. It's not just to know what the Bible says, but to live it, and it is sin. And sin has consequences for the believer. When we sin and rebel against God, and there's no repentance, we have broken fellowship, we have a blown testimony, and often we have physical consequences. If we just refuse to repent, are we still still saved? Yes. But have we broken fellowship with God? Yes. And do we then have an impact on our testimony before others? Yes. And then can it have physical consequences depending on what the sin is? Absolutely. While sin has consequences, obedience produces blessings. Look what it says there. If you observe them, what will happen? You will live and you will multiply and you'll go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. So if we disobey, there's consequences, but when we obey, there's blessing. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. If you obey the Lord, He will bless you. Now, it may not be the blessing you want. I'm not saying, well, if I keep the Ten Commandments for a week, do I get a new car? I mean, how does that work, right? And there are people like that. They think, if I just keep these rules long enough, then God will give me stuff. But He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which is way better than a Cadillac, amen? It's way better than any car or anything we could ever want. And He will bless us when we walk in obedience. And He says, you go in, I'm going to multiply you. Again, and they're going to possess the land that had been promised to their fathers. Now, why didn't their fathers get to go in? Disobedience. It was promised to their fathers. They were delivered out of bondage. They got all the way there. And then they sent the spies in, which was contrary to God's will. And then the spies came back and they listened and they didn't go in. And because of that, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and missed out on God's highest. We disobey God, we will miss out on God's highest. Disobedience had brought death to the previous generation. Disobedience had brought Israel into bondage in Egypt, but faith and obedience would bring them in to the land of promise. A lack of faith and disobedience will always keep us from God's highest. Those of you who have been coming, you cross over the Jordan, that's a type of what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if we want God's highest, we need to press into God's highest. And if we stop short of that, we will have less than God's highest. Again, you can be delivered out of Egypt, but never enter into the land of promise. You can be delivered out of sin, and praise God for that, and you're going to heaven, and that's wonderful. But don't you want all that God has for you? Don't you want all that God has for you? Not some of what, I want to surrender all, not some, amen? And have everything that the Lord has for me. Remember that obedience is the highest form of what? It's worship. If I can, I can sing a song, but not live for the Lord, and that's not really worship. And I can sing, you know... Pastor Don used to say that Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. I surrender all. And he said, really, it should be I surrender some. That'd be more accurate, right? And the reality is that we should give all that we have to the Lord, and we can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, And you shall remember that your Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. Does that ever bug, bum you out that God tests you? Anybody ever struggle with that? Nobody's raising their hand and lying is a sin, okay? <laughs> now the reality is that we get bummed out. Well, wait a minute, why do I got to take a test? I already got saved, right? 
I'm already going to heaven. What's the test all about? Can I tell you that tests are a blessing? Tests are absolutely a blessing from God. And he says there, remember that the Lord your God. So the first thing he says, remember, Mark, recognize the Lord your God. First of ten times he's going to say it in the chapter. Let me define those words for you. Lord is Jehovah. Jehovah means the self-existent or eternal one. Our God always has been and always will be. Amen? Nobody created him. He's before creation. He's overall creation. He's God. And then word Lord, or Lord your God, mean, the word for your God, for God there is Elohim, which means supreme God. It's the same word that you see in Genesis 1. Okay? In the beginning, God. And it's plural, but in a singular sentence, pointing to the Trinity. So he says, the Lord, remember the Lord your God. If you don't forget, if you don't remember anything else I say tonight, walk out of here with remember the Lord your God on your heart. And when you're walking around tomorrow, remember the Lord your God when you're talking. Remember the Lord your God when you're driving. Remember the Lord your God when you're doing your work. Remember the Lord your God when you wake up in the morning and begin your day with Him. And he says, remember the Lord your God, but then he says, who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you. So why were they in the wilderness for 40 years? God was teaching them something. The previous generation had gone and rebelled against God, and so he took them on a 40-year death march. And you might say, man, that just seems really brutal. But God was teaching the next generation in preparation for what they were going to enter into. God led them through the wilderness to humble them and to show them their desperate need of Him. You know what can happen if we're never tested? We'll stop seeing our need for the Lord. If everything is always perfect and we never have any trials or struggles, then we'll never, often, we won't find ourselves on our knees much. Have you ever noticed that when you're in a trial, you pray a lot more? Isn't that true? You lost your job. Oh, I'm praying. All the time now, right? Somebody in my family is diagnosed with a major illness. I'm praying all the time now. And we often say, well, why do I go through tests? Well, because he misses you. Amen? He wants to hear from you a little bit more. He loves you. And he wants you to come before him. And they, they, he wanted them to learn that they needed his protection. Remember, they're backed up to the Red Sea. He opened it up. They saw, man, our God's an awesome God. The Egyptian army was coming. The Amalekites came against them. He wiped them out. Their need for provision. He, dropped, he brought food out of the sky to, to take care of them. He brought water from the rock. Their need for covering from the heat. He led them by a cloud. But he also desired to test them. This is a real key. Let me just really encourage you. You want to know where your walk is with God? How do you respond in times of difficulty? There it is. How do you respond when it's just not fair? How do you respond when your boss is being a jerk? How do you respond when you just found out something in you know, your health, whatever it might be? How do you respond in times of difficulty? That reveals where we're at. And the Lord was teaching them as they wandered through the wilderness, as He was testing them, He was humbling them and He was revealing their own heart to them and where their heart was and that their heart needed to change. Did God know their heart already? Of course He did. Does He know my heart already? Yes. Does He know yours? Of course He does. So why does He need the test to show me my heart? To show me where my heart is and what needs to change and what I need to do differently in my walk with the Lord. It's one thing to know God's Word and say we'll obey it, and it's another thing to do it while we're in the wilderness and when the heat is rising. How to respond in times of testing. That's what reveals where our heart's really at. And again, God does not test us to trip us up. He tests us to grow us up. Amen? He tests you so you'll grow. He doesn't test you so you'll fall. To make you more mature in your walk. The devil tempts you 
to bring out the worst in us, and God tests us to bring out the best in us. And if you start to look at tests that way, you'll start to respond to them in a whole different way. You'll start to realize, okay, God's going to teach me something. I'm going back to class. By the way, I believe this. This is your pastor's personal opinion. I believe you take the same test over and over and over until you pass it. I absolutely believe that. I've talked to people, I sit across the table from them, and they had the same test for 10 years in a row. I'm like, dude, if you pass it, you can move on to the next one, you know? And too often, if we just keep, you know, we just keep not trusting God, and we keep going outside of His will, and we keep rebelling against the Lord, He's going to say, well, you, have, you got a 40 on that. We're going to have to take that one again, right? And too often, that's what happens in our own walk with the Lord. Until we pass the test, we're going to continue to take it. When God allows a difficult circumstance to test us, we'll either trust Him, and become more mature, or will tempt him and become more miserable. When trials come, we can run to God or we can run from him. When trials come, we can be rebellious and anger and bitter towards people and towards the Lord, or we can run to God with a humble and a broken heart and say, Lord, help. By the way, that's a great prayer. Lord, help is a good prayer. I pray that prayer all the time. Lord, help. If we truly trust in the nature and the character and the promises of God, we will run to him in times of difficulty. And again, as we're being squeezed, will be a reflection of the Lord. A test is an opportunity to grow, and it reveals what's in our heart. I want to say this. There are churches all over the country filled with very affluent believers who've never really been tested. And because of that, they've never really grown. You can talk to some people who've been Christian 50 years, and they, they're not very spiritually mature because they've never gone through difficulty. They've trusted in their bank account. They've trusted in the stuff that they have, and they've never had to fall on their face before God. And again, a faith that has never been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. To say I have faith is one thing, but to exhibit it in the midst of difficulty. Some of you have been such an incredible blessing to me, you have no idea. I watch you going through difficulty, and it blesses me. I watch you go through trials in your family and it blesses and encourages me. And other people in the body see what you're going through and they see you standing for the Lord and they go, wow, praise the Lord, because it is a testimony. Without a test, there can be no testimony, amen? And when we go through those tests at work, your coworkers who know you're a Christian go, wow. Your neighbors go, wow. It's a great opportunity for others to see Christ in you. Not only did he test them in the wilderness, but he taught them. Look at verse 3. So he humbled you. And allowed you to hunger and feed you with manna which you did not know, which you, which, with which you, excuse me, manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. If you ever wonder where that verse came from, originally it's right here. And he humbled them and he allowed them to go hungry. And again, why did he allow them to go hungry? so they would be desperate for Him. If they had never known hunger, they never would have been desperate for food. They never would have cried out to the Lord and said, Help! But He allowed them to grow hungry so that He might feed them. That He might feed them with manna. He allowed them to do that so that they would look up. And He fed them to teach them to depend on Him. And I love manna. such a clear picture of the Lord to me. Because what did they have to do? Every morning they had to get up and go out of the tent, right? And they had to gather up all the manna. Manna was small, white, and round. Small pointing to the humility of our Savior. White to the purity of our Savior. Round to the fact that He's eternal God. And I love the fact that every morning they had to go get it. And if they got too much, it would spoil. Because He wanted them to get out of their tent every day and begin their day with Him. And you know what? Manna 
is a picture of the Word of God. It's a picture of Christ. He's the manna come from heaven, but we're to feed on that manna, the Word of God every day. And you know, it's an example that we need to get up out of our bed and begin every day with the Lord. Amen? Meet Him early in the morning. Your whole day will change, I promise you. If you're not doing that, do it for a week. Just say, for one week, I'm going to get up every morning. I'm going to set my alarm 20 minutes earlier than usual. And I'm going to get up and spend 10 minutes in prayer and 10 minutes in the Word. It'd be great if you did it longer than that, but try that. I promise you, it'll, you'll, you'll, you'll be different driving to work. You won't be so quick to, you know, the guy who cut you off, right? You won't be so angry. It'll be amazing how your heart will change when you begin the day with the Lord. And it's the example comes right here. The manna was dropped from the sky. So every day, the first thing they did was they got up, went out and got the manna. They looked for the cloud to see if it had moved. And they were thinking about God all the time. And that's exactly the example for us. And again, to get up early each morning, to begin their day being fed by God. He was teaching them that as they hunger physically, so too they needed to be fed spiritually. Because then it says the rest of that verse, to make known that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God fed them physically, but what was more important was that they needed to be fed spiritually. Where was this later quoted? Jesus was being what? Tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus turns to Satan, Satan says, turn these rocks into bread. And he's like, bread doesn't mean anything. I haven't eaten in 40 days, but man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Told you that every time that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he quoted Deuteronomy. Every single time. Deuteronomy, the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Incredible. Most quoted book by Jesus Christ, Deuteronomy. That's why we teach every book of the Bible, because it's in there for the reason. We're to desire the Word of God, the Bible tells us, more than our necessary food. When we hunger, it brings passion, right? If you're hungry, don't you get passionate about it, right? And if you haven't eaten in like four hours, you're like, where's my food, you know, right? You're at the drive, you know, you're at the drive through Burger King, I'm in 90 seconds. Have you ever done that? This is slow. I've, I, I've been in the car with my kids, man, this is slow. It's 90 seconds. What do you want, right? We're in this microwave generation, man. I'm not going to heat up that dinner. It takes four and a half minutes. Forget it, right? I'm just going to get something quicker. And the reality is that we're in that mode where we want to be fed right now, right? We've got to have it quickly, right? I want to feed my flesh. And hunger brings passion. But you know what? The greatest hunger, Jesus said, Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Not just a physical hunger, but there ought to be a spiritual hunger. A spiritual passion, a spiritual desire to know God better. The Bible again says we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. And as they began each day gathering manna, may we begin each day with the Word of the Lord. And those who obeyed in gathering manna were also more likely to obey the rest of the commandments. And I truly believe if you get up in the morning and begin your day with the Lord, you're going to be much more likely to spend the entire day with Him than if you get halfway through the day and wonder why you're so bummed out and yelling at people at work, right? Man, again, lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word, that's why we teach the whole Bible. That's why we're not teaching topics. Topical messages are okay, that's fine. Somebody else wants to do that, God bless them. We're not going to do that here because we got a lot of, you know how many, again, a lot of Bible studies in here, amen? We're going to be in this book for about 10 years to finish it, right? And so I don't have time to be teaching on seven keys to joy. We need to teach Deuteronomy chapter 8, amen? Now, it says in verse 4, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. Now, can you blow, does that blow your mind? They're walking for 40 years and their clothes never wore out. Now, 
I know my wife and daughter wouldn't be having that, because you've got to have new stuff, right? Doesn't stuff go out of style, right? Well, not in the wilderness. This is, there it is. You're wearing it. Get used to it, right? Can you imagine telling your kids? And what's amazing is that means when the kids grew, their clothes must have grown. I was just thinking about that. They're, the kids are still growing, right? So the kid's got clothes when he's like five, and he's 25, he's still wearing the same stuff. So it must be growing. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, our God took care of it. And you know, the three questions of life is what can we eat, what will we drink, and what will we wear, right? And he's bro- dropping food out of the sky, manna. He's bringing water from a rock, and he gives them one set of clothes and says, I got it taken care of. Just leave them on. They're going to fit you, all right? They're not going to tear. You're not going to have any problems. Our God is a great and awesome God. Again, cast all your cares upon him. And you, can you imagine? It's a good thing they fit. Can you imagine three million people constantly running out of clothes? Can you imagine how, what a train wreck that would have been? But God takes care of the details, stuff we, stuff we don't even think about. I never even thought about their clothes until I read this. Were you wondering? I wonder what they did for clothes. I never thought about that, right? Now, look what else it says. And their feet, never sw- were, their feet did not swell. Well, I never thought about that either. But the reality is, if you're walking around for 40 years, I'm thinking you've got some swollen feet, Right? <laughs> And you know what's interesting? Is the number one reason that people's feet swell is a deficiency in their diet. And what I love about that is that means that manna was perfect. So he's dropping, you know, pastry from the sky and your feet don't swell. Now that's good stuff, right? I mean, it's got the perfect balance of everything you need. If people don't eat enough of certain things, their feet swell up, but the Lord gave them the perfect food. The same Lord that provided Israel's needs provides for our needs today. Amen? And you know what? He doesn't rain manna from the sky necessarily, but He gives you able hands and able feet and ability to go out and get a job, most of us. Amen? And when we go out and work, it's God who is providing. Amen? I've had people tell me God's not providing. I said, no, you're just not working. Right? Is God wrong? I don't think so. Now, some people, because of their health and things like that, can't work, and that's understandable. But I'm just saying that if we're not... God, God is faithful to provide. Always. He's not a liar. He says... His name, one of His names is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. Amen? And when people call, oh, well, God's not providing. No, you're not working. And you're, the Bible says that man will... What? Toil by the sweat of his brow. And God desires that we work. And I believe that, that it's got divine appointments all over it because when we work, we get to be a Christ-like example to the world and we also have opportunities to minister to people. Amen? If we're all laying at home just waiting for manna to fall out of the sky, we'd be a bunch of big fat Christians, right? We'd just never go out. But that's a good thing that God has us working. Verse 5. So their feet weren't swelling. Their clothes were growing with them. That's great. You should... You should know in your heart, again, in your heart, that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So earlier he told them that they test you, that you may know what's in, that God may know, and you may know what's in your heart. Now he says, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. What does that word chasten mean? To what? To discipline. Know in your heart that... After years of slavery, they had to learn freedom. And they had to learn how to live their lives because before they were told how to live. And now the Lord was walking with them and He was disciplining them that they might live a godly life before Him. Those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. Now sometimes we think, only think of that word discipline means when we disobey, we get whapped with a ruler, right? Disobedience. But you know what? 
Discipline also means teaching you how to live. Amen? It's discipline. It's teaching my kids discipline when I say, when you get up in the morning, you make your bed. That's teaching them discipline. That's not punishing them for doing something wrong. It's teaching them to live a disciplined life. God does the same for us. He gives us direction for our life that we might walk before Him in a disciplined way. Discipline is evidence of God's love and our membership in His family. He's our loving Heavenly Father discipling us that we might grow and be spared from harm. The secret to growth when we're being discipled is to humble, or being disciplined, is to humble ourselves and to submit to God's will. To resist His chastening is to harden our hearts and to resist the will of the Father. You know, I don't like being disciplined. How about you? But you know what? God wants us, when we are being disciplined, to come with humility and brokenness and say, yes, Lord, you're right. Yes, Lord, I've blown it. Isn't it hard to say I'm sorry sometimes? Isn't it hard to repent sometimes? Yes, it is. Especially when you have to go to somebody else. That's even harder, right? But that's the Lord's will so that we might grow spiritually. So Moses not, it first reminds them of the trials and tests in the wilderness. And he wants them to know they went through it, that they might be disciplined. And that you, you were there in the wilderness, you saw God's mighty hand. Now the rest of the chapter, he's going to exhort, exhort them as they're about to enter into the land of promise. Because remember, the land of promise is the spirit-filled life. To experiencing God's highest and His richest what he has, as He has for them. Not enough to be brought out of Egypt, but God had more. And so too for you and I. Salvation is, is a blessing. Salvation is key. We must be born again. Amen? But salvation is the beginning point, not the ending point. In our walk with God, that's where it starts. And often, again, you've heard me say it a hundred times, you get the get out of hell free card, you put it in your wallet, and you think, cool, I'm set. Now I'm going to live like the world. No, that's where we start. And that's where we move on in our walk with the Lord. So let's take a look at at Moses exhorting them as they get ready to enter into the land of promise. Because again, there's pitfalls in the midst of trials, but there's also pitfalls in the midst of prosperity. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. So the key to opening the door to the promised land was obeying the Word of God, walking in His ways, and having reverence for Him. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You want to have wisdom in your walk with God? Fear God. Have reverence for God. And sadly, there's too many people today that have no fear of God whatsoever. We live in a country right now that has very little fear of God. They mock God. And as believers, if we want to have wisdom, we should fear the Lord. And he says there, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. If the people of Israel disobeyed God's Word and walked in their own way and had no fear of God they would be inviting God's righteous judgment upon the nation. And so too, when you and I don't listen to God's word, and we walk in our own way, and we don't fear God, then guess what? God loves you enough to bring your sin to light and to administer godly discipline. I tell those people all the time, they'll say, yeah, man, I did this one time and I got caught. Man, God must love you. Amen? I did it once and I got totally... My buddy, you know, does it a thousand times. I do it one time and nailed, right? God loves you. And realize that He loves you enough to bring your sin to light that He might restore you to right fellowship. That's the God we serve. Those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. He loves you enough to discipline you that you might be restored. Verse 7 and 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. 
Now, you might read that list and say, well, that sounds okay. Imagine living in the desert for 40 years and wandering around eating manna. And manna's a blessing, but I'm thinking you might get tired of manna. I mean, if they're dropping glazed donuts out of the sky, after a while you're like, okay, I'm thinking something else would be good right about now, right? And the reality is that he says, look, he's going to bring you into a land where there's going to be fountains. Again, you're living in dirt, right? It's dry, it's hot, and there's going to be fountains and springs. And if you've been to Israel, those who went to Israel with us, there's water everywhere. And it's beautiful. The Jordan River is beautiful. When the water comes up out of the ground, the Sea of Galilee is maybe my most favorite place on this planet. It's beautiful there. And he says, I'm taking you out of the desert, and I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where water is sprouting up out of the ground. And not only that, waters and fountains everywhere, but wheat and barley and vines. So they had grapes and wine and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey. Somebody's probably thinking, manna with some honey on it. That sounds good, right? I mean, you know, right? We finally got something to put on our manna. This is going to be wonderful. And wheat and barley. And so this is such an incredible blessing from a place of dryness to a land with rich blessings. Isn't that the same thing that happened to us when we got saved? We went from a place of spiritual dryness. And now the Bible says, as born-again Christians, out of us flows torrents of rushing what? Living water. And the water's flowing out of us now, amen? And we used to be spiritually dry and we couldn't have any real impact on the world around us. If we did, it was a negative one. But now, filled with the Spirit of the living God, we just gush out on people. We went from dryness to a land of flowing with milk and honey. And praise God that He did that for each and every one of us. It's interesting that the difference between a Spirit-filled life and a life of disobedience is that as we walk in obedience to God, there is that, that water that pours out on others. And when we walk in disobedience, we dry up. Even as Christians, I believe we can walk, live lives of dryness. Have you ever, how many of you ever felt spiritually dry before, right? How do we get back in the flow, right? Get back in the Word. Spend more time in prayer again. Get back in fellowship, right? Ask that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you in a mighty and a powerful way. Verse 9, In a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And I just love the Bible because it's always 100% accurate. And it's interesting that just a few years ago, in these very hills, ancient copper mines were discovered just right below the Dead Sea. And there's copper and iron ore all over the place. And again, God's Word is always right. And I love it when people say, oh, well, that, they never found that. No, they haven't found it yet. Amen. Because they always do if they keep looking. Because God's Word is always accurate. So they went from a place in the desert to a place that was very rich. A place that would feed them, that would care for all of their needs. Again, that would have the metals they would need to make the tools they would need. That they would be able to trade with. And again, it's important to note that every Old Testament physical point points to a New Testament spiritual one. For the children of Israel, they were given physical blessings, but you and I today are given something even greater, spiritual blessings. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Moses told the Jews to praise God after they were full. And I thought about this, and you know what? I'm going to start doing this in my house. We're going to pray before we eat and after we eat. Because it's real easy to pray again when you're hungry, right? Oh man, that smells good. Let's pray quickly, right, everybody, right? Get in here, pray. We got to pray, right? You ever done that? 
We've got to pray. Oh, you know, I've done it too, right? Got to pray, man. Hurry up. That's, right? We're, you know, get so-and-so out of their bedroom. We've got to hurry up and pray. But I think it's good, and I like this, to pray when you're full. You want to pray when we're hungry because we want to hurry up and get the grub, right? But I think it's good maybe at the end of the meal because that's what he told them. After you're full, after you fed yourself, stop and give thanks so you don't forget the Lord. Bless the Lord for the lamb which he has given you because if you don't, you're going to forget. You're going to be fat, dumb, and happy and forget God, right? You're going to be so filled with the things of the world. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, His statutes, which I commanded you today. Do not forget. One of the greatest physical dangers of blessing is the loss of desperation for God. When we have so much, we stop being so desperate. We have everything we could possibly need, and we think, well, I don't... And I've had that happen. And I'll tell you what, can I encourage it? I'll I'll be sitting in a group of guys, what do you need prayer for? I don't need prayer for anything. I'm set. Dude. Really? I don't get that. I mean, I'm I'm like, i got 800 things. I can only give you three? Really? Okay. Right? And the reality is, if you're, I'm set, well, you're not spending too much time with the Lord. Amen? You're not interceding on people's behalf. Aren't you bro- don't you have some unsaved family members? Aren't there some people that need to know the Lord? But what happens is we lose that desperation when we get to the place where we have a lot of stuff sometimes. And he's saying, don't get complacent because you're going to go in and you're going to have grapes now. No more just manna grapes and wheat and barley and vines everywhere with wine. and Man, it's going to be wonderful. Land flowing, milk and honey fountains. You're going to go swimming. Can you imagine you're in the desert, you're going swimming. Oh man, I can't wait, right? And the reality is that we can go, we can be sitting in the pond eating our grapes going, now what happened? You forget about God completely. And that's exactly what he was warning them against. You know, we need to be careful to always remember what we've been delivered from. Amen? Never forget. That's why communion is so key. It's looking back, remembering the cross, or remembering what we've been delivered from. Verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Again, prosperity can infect our hearts with pride and a feeling of entitlement. How many of you have ever said, my hand's already up, how many of you ever said, I don't deserve this? I deserve better. I've said it. I don't want what I deserve. How about you? Amen? You know, what do we deserve? Hellfire. Oh, I know I don't want that, right? I'll pass, right? But the reality is that we often say, I want what I deserve. And what happens is, as we get more stuff, we start to feel like we deserve more stuff. Right? We start to feel entitled. Well, you know, and so these guys are going to land of promise. You tell them, look. Don't you get to the point where you're so content with what you have that you forget about what God has delivered you from. The peril of pride. I worked hard for it. I deserve what I have. You know what? Everything you have is God's. All of it. You're just tending God's stuff. You're living in God's house. You're wearing God's clothes, right? That's God's money in your account. It's all God's. And we're just being stewards of what belongs to the Lord. But too often we think, you know, I just need more stuff to be satisfied. All that we have belongs to the Lord, and the more stuff we get often, our passion diminishes, our heart to serve becomes a heart expecting to be served. Right? Well, I got a lot of stuff. You don't have much. You need to serve me. And the reality is that's what happens. 
We start to look at people by class. Well, that person you know, lives in a, this neighborhood, and we start to judge people on the house they live in or the car that they drive. Where in the Bible do you see that? Man looks on the outward appearance, and God looks on the heart. Amen? And it's the heart that we need to look at. And again, they once were enslaved in bondage, and they cried out to God. They were in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, and they cried out to God. Now in fine houses with large flocks and gold and silver stockpiles, no longer desperate for God, they they would begin to trust in their own self-sufficiency. Our accumulation of wealth can fill our hearts with pride and self-sufficiency. 1 Timothy 6 says this, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Wealth can produce hearts that look down on those who are not as blessed as we are. As Christians, we are to have humble hearts and to give God the glory for everything. Guys, more stuff won't satisfy you. Your flesh will never be satisfied. They asked Rockefeller many years ago, you know, was it 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million? What number was it when you were finally satisfied? What number do you need? What's the amount you need to be satisfied? And his answer was a little bit more. No matter what you have, you need a little bit more. And he's warning them as they're going into the land of promise, don't get complacent because you're going to have riches beyond your wildest dreams. And the, the temptation is going to be to stop being desperate for God. You know, it's a hard prayer to pray. Can I encourage you? Pray and say, Lord, if I have anything that's getting my eyes off of you, just take it away from me. Get ready if you do that, right? I mean, next day you totally beamer, right? I mean, you know, sometimes it's, you know, God will take things away. Now, I want to make it clear. It's okay to have stuff. It's okay to possess things as long as they don't possess you. And as long as they don't take your eyes off of God. If you're in this room and you're an American, you're rich compared to the rest of the world. No matter what, how much money you make, okay? We have, you know, and that's the reality. And so because of that, we just need to make sure we keep God as the priority in our lives. Verse 15 and 16. Who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you, that He might test you to do your good in the end. Now, Moses was warning them to be wary of pride and what does he do one more time? He reminds them of what God had already done for them. How can we be prideful when we think about the cross? How can we be prideful when we look back at our sinful, wicked lives and how God saved us? How can we boast in anything? All we should be doing is coming before God and boasting in Him. And what he says is, what did God do for you? He led you through the wilderness. He had the cloud there to lead you. Otherwise, you'd have got lost, right? If the Lord wasn't leading you, you would have got lost. He delivered them from the fiery serpents. What are the fiery serpents a picture of? What did they have to do? Remember they got bit? And what did they made a brass pole and put what on it? A serpent. And they held it up and everybody had to look to the serpent and anybody who had been bitten would be healed. Now, what is that a picture of? Why, now, a serpent's a picture of Satan or sin. So you say, wait a minute, they're looking to sin? They get bit and they look to sin to be healed? That doesn't make any sense to me. Unless you read the verse where it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Amen? That serpent on the pole, brass, is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of Christ. And he said, you were bitten by the serpent, and if you look to the cross or to the brass pole, the picture of the cross, you were healed. It was God who did that for you. He's reminding them. He brought water from the rock. He brought manna from the sky. God had provided everything that they needed. 
They were destined to die in the wilderness without His help, and He was the one who came along and rescued them. And in the midst of all that, it was a test to mature them in their faith, to get them to trust in God. Verse 17. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. What must God think when we act that way? What must God think when we start taking praise from men for the things that we accomplish? Without Him, we can do what? Nothing. And the word in the original language for nothing is nothing. You can do nothing. So that means anything you do, who should be glorified? God. You have a gift, God gave it to you. If you can play the guitar, God's the one that gave you the gift to play it. If you're able to teach the Word of God, God gave you the gift. If you've got the gift of helps and a burden to minister to others, God gave you that gift. If you've got the gift to to, uh, share your faith and you have the gift of evangelism, God gave you that gift. And if you've got stuff, God gave it to you and you're to use it for His glory, not yours. Amen? Too often we want to glory in our stuff when we ought to be glorying in the Lord. If we get puffed up with pride and forget all that God has done for us, we will selfishly take credit for what God has done. And again, you may have worked hard, but God is the one who gave you the ability to do it. Verse 18. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to the fathers as it is to this day. Remember the Lord your God. He says it ten times in this text. Because he knew when they got around riches, they were going to be very quick to forget. And you know what, guys? In times of trial and in times of plenty, we can forget the Lord if we're not constantly seeking His face. If we're not in the Word every day, if we're not in fellowship, if we're not seeking Him in prayer, it's so easy. In times of abundance, it's easy to take credit and take our eyes off of God. And God had promised the nation of Israel that they would prosper as long as they walked in obedience to His Word. God blessed them and has blessed us that it would ultimately fulfill all of His eternal promises. Today, you and I, we talked about this on Sunday. How many of you are here on Sunday? Okay, We talked about the body of Christ, and we talked about your spiritual gifts, that you all have them. Amen? So we all have these gifts. Now what? I've been born again. We all have gifts. Now what? Now we can take those gifts and do nothing with them, and there will be no fruit. Or we can take those gifts and use them for God's glory. And we all have different gifts. That's why we all come to meet together, because you have gifts that I don't, and I need you to minister to me. And I may have gifts that you don't, and God will use me to minister to you, and that should be happening throughout the whole body. Some of us are eyes, and some of us are ears, and some of us are hands, and some of us are feet, and that's why we come together as the body of Christ. And what he's saying here again in this, in this text is that we're to use what we have for His glory. And the Great Commission is to go out and use our gifts that He might be glorified to reach others for the kingdom. Last two verses. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. That's a pretty strict, stiff warning, isn't it? He says, if you just disregard the Word of God, and if you forget the Lord and you start worshiping other gods, it is going to result in your judgment. They're going into the land of promise. They're entering God's blessing, and they were not to forget the goodness of God. They were not to forget the fact they've been delivered from sin, from Egypt, a picture of sin. Forgetting God's goodness and ultimately would them lead to them rejecting God's authority. If you forget how good God is, you're going to see no need to obey Him. Why don't people fear God? They forget how good God is. 
They don't know His grace. They don't know His mercy. They don't understand His love. So they say, who's God to tell me what to do? Oh, just your Creator, that's all, right? Just the one who suffered and died that you might have eternal life. The one who put the stars in the sky. The one that numbers the hairs on your head. And the one you're going to stand before on Judgment Day. But other than that, nobody's significant, right? I mean, the reality is that God is God and we need to honor Him. But sadly, too many people, because they don't know the goodness of God, they reject the authority of God. And so he's saying to them, don't forget how good God is, because if you do, you'll forget, you will no longer honor Him. And you'll no longer allow Him to have authority in your life. The penalty of pride is a hardened heart, forgetting the true God. And it leads to worship of false gods. By the way, everybody is worshiping something. You worship God, you worship your job, you worship your physique, your bank account, something. I think I told you guys this. I went and looked at it. We're not moving again, but we thought about moving to a different mobile home in our park. It has another bedroom. We went to look at it, and the people that owned it had a, a bedroom that was, a, the entire bedroom was a shrine to all the Hindu gods. And I walked in there, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, right? And there's Lakshmi from India, right? The six-armed goddess of wealth. And I'm like, yeah, that seems to be working out. You're living in a trailer park. But here's the thing, like me, right? But the reality is... That they've got all these, and they're, they're, they've got all this incense and pictures of gurus all over the wall, and I'm thinking, man, that is so sad. You're worshiping a dead idol that somebody carved out of a block of wood. I don't get it, right? But the reality is, when we don't know the goodness of God and the grace of God, we're going to fall for anything. If we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything, amen? If we don't stand for the Lord, we'll so easily fall for the things of this world. If we get our eyes off of God for a minute, will be so easily drawn away by the things that the world has to offer. He testified to them that without hesitation, God's going to bring judgment. So if we forget God's goodness and begin to trust in our own ability, then we will ultimately reject God's authority and idolatry will begin in our heart. And you know what the sad part is? That idolatry begins when we start to look for gifts instead of looking for the giver. Idolatry begins when we start looking for stuff instead of looking for God. Guys, the, the greatest passion of our life ought to be to have intimacy with the Lord. An ungrateful heart can quickly become a haven for all sorts of sinful attitudes, appetites, and begin to cater to the flesh. Last verse. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice, voice of the Lord your God. You know, they had already seen the mighty hand of God wipe out a bunch of nations. They've, they've been standing there and watched them do it. And he said, you know what, guys? If you disobey God, you're next. If you disobey God, His power will, instead of being for you, will come against you. Don't you want God's power for you? Don't you want Him on your side? Don't you want to serve the Lord and walk with Him and have Him leading and guiding and directing your life instead of coming against you? If Israel forgot the Lord, rejected His authority, and turned and followed false gods, they would face the very same judgment as the nations that God had destroyed before them. It was a stern warning. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I want Him holding me, not judging me. Amen? I want to, I want to walk in the center of His will. I want to know Him in an intimate way. He's Abba Father. And that's the way I want to walk with Him. Prosperity can often bring forth ingratitude, which then can lead to idolatry. These are three steps that led to ruins. They're not ancient sins. We still see them in the church today. So in closing, Moses reminded the children of Israel as they were about to enter into the land of promise, you know, great counsel for you and I today, to remember the Lord. To remember the Lord and to know that when they go through trials, God's using it to make our heart 
more like His, to show us where our heart is falling short, to cause us to seek His face more, to make us desperate for Him, to help us grow in our faith, to allow us to be more mature. You know what? If you go through a test, and, you, and again, you're obedient in the midst of it, you will come out closer to God than when you started. Amen? I'm sure we could have people get up and share testimonies about that. And then, to remember the Lord your God, remember all He has delivered you from. Have a humble and desperate heart for Him. Feed on the Word every day. Get up like they got up and got manna. Get up in the morning. Get up, even if it's ten minutes, get up a little earlier and open up the Word of God. Don't allow blessings and prosperity to give you spiritual amnesia. Don't be desperate for God when, the rent, when you don't have the rent check. And then when you got a bunch of money in the bank, forget who's God, where God is, Right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And my heart would be that it would only be when we're in the shadow of death we would cling to God, but even when we're laying in the pasture that we would cling to God. Amen? Both in times of prosperity and in times of difficulty, may we hang on to the Lord. The greatest enemy of a broken and a contrite heart is the same thing that got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. It's the same thing that got Lucifer thrown out of heaven. And it's one word. What is it? Pride. Sin of pride. It's pride. And the thing that will cause our hearts to be where they, where they don't belong is if we get prideful and we stop being desperate for the Lord. And Moses was telling him, you're going into the land of promise. There's going to be a lot there for you. Don't forget about God. Hey guys, as you continue to walk with the Lord, as, you're, as you go through stages of life and you're getting married, having kids, having grandkids, having blessings come into your life, don't forget about God. Always make God the number one priority. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You again for Your love and Your grace. We thank You for the warning that was given to the children of Israel that applies to our lives today. Lord, I pray that we'd be men and women of God who would have a heart for You. That Lord, during times of trials and tests that we would draw closer to You and hang on to You, Father. But also, as those tests would reveal our heart and would be a testimony to the world around us, Lord, I pray also that during times of prosperity that we would not grow complacent in our walk with You. When things seem to be perfect, when the health is good, Lord, I pray we would just be praising You for all the blessings in our life, not growing complacent in our walk. So Lord, we love You, we praise You, we worship You. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.